Well, good morning again. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the uh, pastor here at uh, Resurrection OC, and it's uh, I'm really excited to introduce our uh, our guest speaker this morning. Um, Doug Swaggerty uh, has pastored churches in California and uh, in San Diego and in New Mexico, and uh, he's uh, been a, a friend and a mentor and uh, my church planting coach for uh, uh, well. A period of time, and he uh, spends most of his time uh, coaching other church planters now. So, Doug, thank you so much for being here this morning. It's a pleasure to have you with us. If you want to follow along in, in your Bibles, uh, there on the on the chairs, uh, if you turn to page 502, I want to share some thoughts this morning from Psalm 103 with you. And um, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us uh, this Psalm of David. I pray that our thoughts out of it this morning would be pleasing to you and and would uh, also be of great benefit to our souls. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to uh, talk this morning on a theme that is a little bit of a, a minefield. Sometimes I realize it. It's on the fatherhood of God. And the reason why I say that's a minefield is because we all have human fathers. And, and then when we talk about the fatherhood of God, so much of what we've experienced of our human fathers gets kind of carried over. Now, some of us, for some of us, that's a good thing. It's, it's like we have a jump start on this because we had a good father. 
a father who wasn't perfect, but he was a good father. He loved well. He loved our mom well. He loved our siblings well. He loved us well. And when we think about God being a father, we have a good starting point. We say, okay, there's a good dad I had. And we just add to that goodness to get to God. So we get to know the fatherhood of God by analogy, I would say. But there are others of us here, I always realize that in any crowd, there's going to be those whose earthly father was not that. Uh, that your earthly father, in order to move from your earthly father to your heavenly father, you have to navigate through a lot of mess. Maybe your father wasn't there. Maybe he abandoned you. Maybe uh, your father was an angry man. Maybe there was some other issue that resulted in, in some kind of abusive situation that was in your house that your father was in the center of. And so when we begin to talk about the fatherhood of God, you can only understand that by way of contrast. You know, you enter it by saying, okay, my dad was, you know, this really bad dad, but I've got this really good dad. And so we contrast the bad with the good. And then the rest of us, I think we're, we're just kind of in that, uh, that in-between place of mixture where we had, we had good dads, uh, but they're not perfect dads. You know, dads who loved us and loved us well, but at other times failed in one way or another. And so we, uh, we have to contrast in some ways, and in other ways we can use analogy to come uh, to a better understanding of God as our Father. Well, Psalm 103 speaks of God as a Father, uh, and, a, and a God who is on our side. Uh, uh, in verse 13, we read that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. But we have a father, uh, this psalm is telling us, who welcomes us, a father who wants to embrace us, a father who wants to show his love uh, to us. And we long for that father's embrace more than we long for anything else. That's what Bryce was talking about at, at the beginning of worship. Uh, St. Augustine, the great church father, once wrote in his confessions to God as a prayer. He says, you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And that rest, we're never going to find it completely until we see him face to face. But we get glimpses of that. We get uh, examples of that in this life. And this psalm really reflects some of that. So this morning, what I want to do is not so much dive into all the particulars of Psalm 103, but what we just read shares with us a view of a father that's on our side, that's welcoming us, that's embracing and forgiving us. And so there's some truths that I want us to just take away from this, this passage um, as, we, as we look at it today. And here are the truths. The first one is that we have a father who's not ashamed of us. And so then secondly, we can, uh, we, we don't have to hide from our father. We don't have to be, uh, we don't have to pretend with our father. And then the third thing I want to talk about is how God is still, as our father, not finished with us yet. About uh, 30 years ago, Lois and I, my wife, had an experience that uh, we've, we've always uh, remembered ever since. We were speaking, uh, we were up at a conference for pastors up in uh, Northern California, and uh, I was doing some speaking, and they had asked Lois to play worship uh, for this, this conference. It was a two or three day uh, deal, and 
And the conference went along pretty well, and it was one of those conferences where at the end they pass out an evaluation sheet where all the little seminars you took or the plenary sessions or the worship or the food or the hotel, you know, you're rated all one to five, and, and, and you know, you, then you turn your, your sheet in. So Lois and I got these sheets. We filled them out, and Lois kind of showed me hers, and I showed her mine, and, and uh, we, we turned them on in. And, and it was about probably two months later. It was a long time. A couple months later that in the mail we received the results of our uh, of the surveys you know and so being uh, the self-centered person that I am I went right to my results you know it's like when you see a picture a group picture you're in you know you always look for yourself and see how do I look in this picture and everyone else can be drooling with their eyes shut and if you're looking good it's a great picture right you know and and so I went in and I looked at mine and you know it was is you know above average, uh, kind of woebegone. You know, all the kids are above average, kind of thing. It, it was it was okay, and I, I was like, oh, that's good, that's good. And uh, and I, I said to Lois, well, how were your scores? And she goes, pretty good. But um, then the next couple of days, she was uh, I could tell something was was kind of bugging her. And uh, and finally, after two or three days, I, I said, what's wrong? You seem a little down. She goes, well, it's that evaluation thing. We got back, and I said, well, what? And she goes, well. My scores were okay, but someone wrote a comment uh, about, about the worship that said simply, the worship leader did not have a solo quality voice. The worship leader did not have a solo quality voice. And, and I'm having a hard time dealing with that. And I, I said, are you serious? And she goes, yeah, I'm serious. And I go, what kind of, pa she says, what kind of pastor would write something like that in, in an evaluation form in a conference? I go, well, you don't really remember, do you? And she goes, no, what are you talking about? I go, that's what you wrote on your own evaluation sheet about yourself. <laughs> you know, it was the end of the week and she was tired and, and she was kind of flippant and thought, well, I'll just write down here, you know, uh, worship leader did not have a solo quality voice and she showed it to me and I'm like okay that's typical Lois you know that'll that and and she sort of thought that whoever whoever tallied all these results would see her name at the top and and get a laugh out of it and, and kick it out but they didn't they just included it with all the other comments and so when she got it like two or three months later she totally forgot that she had written this and, and as soon as I said, don't you remember, you wrote that, the lights came on and she goes, oh yeah, I did, didn't I? You know? <laughs> and, and all of a sudden she felt a little bit better about the whole experience uh, as a result. Um, you, you know, sometimes there, and there's morals we can get out of that, but I, I guess, but you gotta be careful how you criticize because it, it may come back on you, I guess that's one thing. But um, I think that one of the things that, that I always thought about when I think of that story is how the words that we speak to ourselves often do come back and, and haunt us. They often are the hardest words that we hear about ourselves. And so it's important what we say about ourselves to ourselves. That's very, very important. In this particular Psalm, this is one of those Psalms where David is talking to himself. I don't know if you picked that up, but in the very first verse, it in, begins and ends this way. In the first verse, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then at the very end, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And everything in between is just bookend by 
David's saying to himself, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's reminding himself, this is what he needs to do. This is the truth that he needs to act on. And so that's the context that I want you to see these three things that I want you to learn from this passage this morning, that uh, we're talking to ourselves and, and we're telling us these certain truths about ourselves. And as we look at Psalm 103 and we look at this first truth, um, all the ways that God's forgiveness is expressed leads us to a, a rather strange conclusion. He says he forgives all our iniquities, heals us, redeems us. His steadfast love and mercy satisfies. He's, his righteousness, he works righteousness and justice. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. He removes our transgressions from us. The Lord shows compassion to us. And all those ways that his forgiveness is expressed to us, one of the things that's underlined there is that for some reason, God is not ashamed of us. God is not ashamed of us. I think some of our self-talk that we get into is talk about guilt and shame, isn't it? When we think about our standing before God, sometimes we just are weighed down with the fact that we failed. We haven't lived up to what he's called us to. And, and we can't imagine a God who would not be ashamed of us. There's actually a verse in Hebrews chapter 11, which is uh, a passage where the writer is talking about all sorts of Old Testament figures that live by faith. And in verse 16, it's in the context of a longer section on the life of Abraham. And it talks at the beginning about how Abraham left uh, you know, the land that he grew up in to go to the land God had promised him when he was at retirement age, full retirement age. He left to go uh, to the land of Canaan. And then there's a little pause and then uh, where, where the Lord says a few things about Abraham. And then they continue the story with the sacrifice of Isaac, uh, that, that whole episode there. But in that little pause, what it says there, God talks about how all of these people walked in faith, not only Abraham, but all these people. And they walked in faith in such a way that if they had wanted uh, to have a home, they could have had a home. But instead they looked forward to something greater. And then it says this interesting thing in verse 16, it says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. God's not ashamed to be called their God. Now, when you think about the life of Abraham, there in Hebrews 11, it only mentions good stuff. But we know from the life of Abraham that there wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't all just a bed of roses for Abraham, that there were ways in which he really failed God. I think the one that sticks out the most uh, of, of you know, a handful of ways that were recorded was the way when he first went uh, to the promised land and he took his wife Sarah with him and all the servants and everyone, quite a big group of people. But his wife uh, was, was so beautiful that he was afraid that, uh, that the men of the country would uh, want to have her. And so rather than say she was his wife and perhaps get himself into trouble, he said, she's my sister. And they took her off. And, and by God's protection, nothing happened to her. But Abraham realized in the aftermath of that that he had probably done the most cowardly thing he could do. Rather than be a man and stand up for his wife and protect his wife in a, in a strange situation where there was a lot of danger, he, he really put her in harm's way. And he repented of that. He asked God's forgiveness and God, God forgave him. And, but then, you know, a few years later, 
they're on, uh, they find themselves in Egypt and Abraham has the same fear again and he does the exact same thing again. He says, she's my sister. And again, God protects her. And again, Abraham is left realizing that, that he hadn't gained any ground in the intervening years, that he's still a sinner, that he's still someone that, that let his wife down and in so doing, he really let God down as well. But it's this very person that Hebrews 11, in talking about summarizing his life, says God is not ashamed. God is not ashamed to be called his God. And what that underscores to me is what uh, a man by the name of Brian Stevenson wrote. Brian Stevenson was a man who heads up a, a thing called the Equal Justice Initiative out of Houston. And he wrote this, he said, each of us, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. How often do we pretty much define ourselves by the worst thing we've ever done? Especially when we think about our relationship with God. We think of the worst thing we've ever done, so that's me. Bruce Stevenson said, each of us, Brian Stevenson said, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Uh, Helen Prejean, who wrote uh, Dead Man Walking that the movie was based on, had a very similar quote that she latched on to that caused her to want to write this story about this man in prison and facing capital punishment uh, for the crime that he committed. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Uh, that certainly was true for Abraham. It's certainly true for us as well because God does not seem to be ashamed of us as we read in Psalm 103. You might say, well, uh, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but there's a lot of other things going on in my life and others really won't let me move on from that terrible thing that I did. One of my former pastors in a book once said this, he said, a reputation is too heavy of a load for a child of God to carry. Let's worry less about what others think of us and be more astonished at what our Father says is true about us. Think less of what others think of you, think more about and be astonished over what the Father says is true of us. David really had to learn this, didn't he? I mean, he was constantly in the early part of his adulthood on the run from those who wanted to kill him, wanted to persecute him. And, and there are times when David even gets to the point where he, um, he even wonders before God whether his accusers might be right. He says, Lord, I, I'm so mixed up. I don't know. You know. You be the judge. If I'm right, you know, protect me from them. If I'm wrong, take me out. You know, he, he kind of comes before the Lord that way in Psalm 7. But um, David had that kind of confusion. He had to continue to remind himself what God had said that was true about him. And if David needs it, so, so do we. The Father is not ashamed of us. And so secondly, uh, we don't have to hide or pretend from our Father. We don't have to hide from him or pretend uh, to our Father. You, well, you might say, well, um, there is a sense in the Bible where uh, hiding was the reaction to sin. And of course, that's the very first sin, right? Uh, when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And we know that, that um, when they fell into sin, they tried to hide from God. And when God came down to fellowship with them like he normally did, uh, he had to call them out from their place of, of hiding. And I certainly acknowledge that, but what we have to realize is that up until that point, there was no good news. There was no gospel. 
Uh, there was only bad news, that Adam and Eve had been told what to do and they didn't do it. Uh, they had been told not what, to, not what not to do and they did it. And so they felt the guilt and the shame of that. They were hiding from God. But there, in, the, in that encounter that God has with them, first thing after the sin in Genesis 3, he plants the seed there of the gospel. I, when I read Genesis 3, I'm not sure I really understand what Adam and Eve would have thought God was talking about because he talks about how, you know, the, the head, the child that you bear is going to bruise the head of the serpent, you know, and all this kind of thing. And, and I, I don't know how they would have pieced all that together. With hindsight, though, we know that he was already talking about his son, Jesus, and that Jesus would come and Jesus would be this sacrifice that would be the one who would, um, who, who would save us from our sin. And the gospel uh, is, is the good news that Jesus has come and done that. And already the good news was introduced. And so when we understand the gospel, even when we're faced with our sin and our failure, it doesn't have to be something that sends us into hiding or sends us into pretend. I can remember as a father, one of the, one of the funnest things I did with my kids was play hide and seek uh, in the house at night. Sometimes we played flashlight hide and seek. You've probably done that too. And my kids are now, you know, in their 30s and and we don't play hide and seek anymore, but uh, they have grandkids, you know, and, and or we have grandkids from them, and, and we're going to look forward to playing hide and seek with them one day. Um, when, when you play hide and seek with your kids, especially when they're really young, it's really easy. It's like fishing in a barrel, isn't it? You know, you say, okay, go hide, and I'll count to 20, and you stay in the other room, you count to 20, and then you go, okay, here I come, ready or not. And, and, and I would say, I wonder where they are. You know, and they, from the back of the house, they go, I'm back here, you know. And they didn't get the idea, so I'd run back and I'd find them, and, and uh, you, you know, that's how hide and seek would work until they realized that they shouldn't give themselves up so easily, you know. And so after a while, uh, I say, here I come, ready or not, I wonder where they are. I wouldn't hear anything. And I start to go back and maybe three or four minutes would go by and I wouldn't find them. And, and I said, I gotta, sh I gotta up my game here a little bit, you know. And so I'd say to Lois, oh, I'd say it out loud, Lois, I, I can't find them. I think I'm just gonna go watch TV for a while. And there'd be a little silence. And then I hear, I hear a voice say, no, keep trying, you know. <laughs> and then I would know where they were and I'd run back and I'd get them. The reason that it, that's cute is because it points to the fact that even when we play hide and seek as little kids, we don't want to hide, do we? We don't want to stay hidden. We play hide and seek ultimately so that we can be found. We don't want, to, we don't want dad to go watch TV for three hours and then, you, you know, stay back in some little cubby somewhere uh, that whole time. We want him to find us. We want to be found by... By the Father, uh, and so Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, I think, also had that that drive, that understanding that in our relationship with God, we also we don't want to hide, even though that's that's kind of our default when when we fall into sin and fail. We want to we, we think we can hide, we get into that mode. But God, we really don't want to hide from Him. We want to be found by God. And Paul wanted to be found by God. The way that Paul thought he would be found by God when he started out his life, the Apostle Paul, was by doing all sorts of good things. Uh, he thought that would catch God's attention. And even in this passage, you know, there's um, as, as wonderful as the promises are here about God's forgiveness, 
Did you notice that three different times um, these promises are given, it says, to those who fear him? To those who fear him. And, and later in verse, in verse 18, it says, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And so we're thinking as we read this, okay, so all those great things about forgiveness and separating our sins and all those sorts of things are only if we, if we do this right and we begin to think that way. There's another Psalm, uh, Psalm 24, that actually talks about uh, the Jews on their way to worship. And one of, the, one of the verses says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. And, it, and the answer to that is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And it sounds so wonderful, doesn't it? Until you realize that's the requirement. And, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I don't, I don't measure up to that. So how does this, how is this good news? How does this really, how does this really fit in? I, I call these verses, um, uh, these, these verses like the ones we see in Psalm 103 and Psalm 24, I, I call them good luck with that verses. <laughs> Meaning, you know, good luck with that. You know, clean hands and a pure heart, good luck with that. If that's how you're going to get to God, good luck with that. Fearing God, keeping his commandments, obeying his precepts, good luck with that. Because what Paul came to realize in, in Philippians 3, he talks about this journey he went on to be found by God. And, and he said, I, I was, you know, the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, I, I, as to the law, I was blameless. He, he lists all these things that he achieved in order to be found by God. And in another part of the New Testament, he writes about how in that journey, he was checking things off right and left. You know, he could go down the Ten Commandments and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And then he got to 10, he says, and he realized, it was just kind of this jarring thing, he realized that number 10, which says don't covet your neighbor's wife or what your neighbor has or all those sorts of things. He realized that that's not something you can just check off that that something inside and, and all of a sudden he began to despair and realize that I can I can do all these things outwardly but now it's talking about something inside that I can't control and at that point he said I realized I, I was it was hopeless for me and when you go back to Philippians 3 when he realizes that he says all these things that I amassed in my effort to tell God find me find me here I am I realized that they were rubbish he says and he says, I count them but loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. He says, and being found, being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. You see what Paul realized is that as good as he could amass a record of righteousness, it wasn't going to measure up. When he looked at these verses and, and said, good luck with that, he realized, hey, I'm out of luck with this. I can't measure up to that. This isn't pure 98% of the time. This is pure. This is pure. This is clean. This is fearing the Lord. This is keeping his commandments. And there's only one who has done that. That's what Jesus did for us. And often when we think about the good news of the gospel, we forget that it's not just that Jesus died for our sins, but that he lived for our righteousness. And, and at the cross, what happens is that, is that God says in, that if you believe and trust in what Christ has done for you, 
you get to change records. You know, Christ takes your sin and he nails it to the cross and, and pays the penalty of it. And he, you get his righteousness so that when you stand before God, you have this record that's clean. And God looks at you and he says, I'm not ashamed. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to hide from me. Paul wanted to be found in him. And so God calls us in that way as a father to him. You know, the more I, I realize these things, and then I go back to that uh, old hymn that Billy Graham always used to play at the end of his, at the end of his uh, gospel presentations, his uh, crusades. He used to always play just as I am. And it really does speak to what David is talking about here. So just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. You see, it's not that we have to clean ourselves up for God. It's only by going to God can we be cleaned. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. A friend of mine has written a book recently, and he's also a friend of Bryce's. He was reading this on the way home from Atlanta. There was one point where he said, our pretend version of ourselves, that thing that we conjure up, you know, when we want to pretend before others and before God. Our pretend version of ourselves are expressions of unbelief in which we reject the notion that he could be a father who loves us unconditionally. But he does. But he does. We don't have to pretend and we don't have to hide. And then the last thing I want you to see from this, this passage is just to be encouraged that God is going to finish his work. There's another verse in, in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 6, where it says that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it, will continue to work in you and complete it at the day of, of judgment. So that God is going to start something and he's going to end up finishing it. Now in this passage in Psalm 103, one of the, uh, the key verses in this, as far as I'm concerned, is verse 14, where it says, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows who we are. He knows who we are. And, and he goes on to talk about how our days are numbered and, and uh, we're like the grass of the field. The wind passes over and it's gone and its place knows no more. So he's talking about how life is so transitory, how we don't, you know, we don't get hundreds and hundreds of years to get this right. Life is a vapor. It comes fast and it goes fast. But it says the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Everlasting to everlasting. So what he's saying here is that God's going to finish the work that he has begun uh, in us. Our days are numbered, but God's love is not. It will, he will continue uh, to show that love to us. One of the um, most <coughs> incredible moments in uh, Olympic history happened, as far as I'm concerned, happened in 1992 in Barcelona. If you're, if you're an Olympic fan, and you mentioned 1992 Barcelona, you may think of the dream team. That was the first year we sent pros to play basketball in the Olympics. And so 
you know, Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, Larry Bird and Charles Barkley and all these guys went over and, and they beat every team they played like 120 to 40. And we all thought, yeah, we're, we're tough, we're good, you know, all this kind of thing. Um, that was in 1992. But on the track field, there was another event that, that happened and that's the one I'm talking about. It was the 400 meter race. Um, they actually call the 400 meter a sprint. I don't know why, I can, you know, at this point I can sprint maybe 20 meters pretty good. <laughs> but 400 meters uh, is a long time to sprint. I mean, 100 yards when you're in shape, 100 meters is a long ways. Um, but the 400 meter race is one where it's just basically one lap around the track. And there was a man by the name of Derek Redmond who was a, a, a black British runner who had actually qualified in the 88 Olympics. And right before his first heat in the 88 Olympics, he disqualified himself because he felt tension uh, in his Achilles tendon. And, and sure enough, there was a problem there. And I read one account that said that he has something like six or seven surgeries between 1988 and 1992. And he rehabbed himself and he was in the best shape he could possibly be. Uh, he had won his first, or he had qualified in his first heat to get into the semifinals. If he qualified in the semis, he'd, he'd be in the finals. And the gun went off in the semifinal heat. And Derek Redmond started to go around the track and 150 meters into the race. You can pull this up on YouTube and see the whole thing. 150 meters into the race, he pulls up. And he said it felt like someone shot him. And what had happened was that his hamstring had just torn uh, 150 meters in. You can't run without a hamstring. And he went down to the ground uh, and, and, he, and he just kind of stayed on one knee and, and you could just kind of see the disappointment, the pain, everything that he was going through at that point. Uh, the world record for the 400 meters is like 43 seconds. So by the time uh, he fell and realized what had happened and got up, the race was basically over. But when he got up, uh, there were medical people that had rushed to him. He got up and he started moving as fast as he could. It would be wrong to call it a run because it was more like a hop because he would hop on the, on the bad leg the, where the hamstring was broken. And, uh, but he went all the way around the track until he was on the back stretch. And he started slowing down. And if you watch the clip, you'll see in the clip that there's this guy who comes out of the stands when he's at the head of the backstretch. So he's got maybe 100, 100 meters to go and there's this guy who comes out of the stands and he's wearing a Nike hat that says, just do it. And he's, he's a little bit overweight. Uh, he's not an athlete, it's obvious. He's in shorts and tennis shoes with, with white socks up to his, you know, over his calves, you know, looking kind of dorky like, you know, a dad would look. And, uh, and he's running out of the stands and he's bowling over track officials who, are, who see he doesn't have the right, uh, you know, pass around his neck. He shouldn't be on the infield and he's just pushing him off and he runs right up to Derek and all of a sudden you realize what's going on. This is his father. It's his father, Jim. And, and some of the track officials follow him to where he's talking to his son. I wish he were miked because I think he said some really choice things <laughs> to the track officials. I, I, it would have been interesting to have the direct quotes, but he's very angry because he's just saying, get away from me, get away and they're trying to take him off the track and finally they leave him alone. And he turns to his son and he says, Derek, you don't have to finish this, you know that. And Derek says, I know I don't have to finish, but I want to. And so the dad says, okay, then we're gonna do it together. Now this was a dad who had, who had, uh, 
He was a sports dad who had sacrificed so much of his life for this moment, for, for, this, for, for his son Derek to be able to uh, enjoy this moment. It had involved moving, it involved money, it involved time, involved all the things you do when you have a, a child who's trying to achieve at that level of athletic excellence all the things you have to do to keep that child moving forward, uh, Jim Redmond had done for Derek. And so when he took Derek's arm and he threw it around his shoulder and he, and he walked him those last hundred meters to the finish line, he was only doing what he said, I had to do it. He was interviewed later and he said, whatever happens, he had to finish and I was there to help him finish. I intended to go over the line with him we started this career together, and I think we should finish it together. And here's the question for us. Is God any less of a father than Jim Redmond? If Jim Redmond is that committed to his son, how much more is our Heavenly Father committed to us? If you go into the Olympic uh, record books and look up 400 meter 1992, Derek Redmond, what you'll find next to his name would be just um, uh, a short three word synopsis. And it would say, did not finish, did not finish. He crossed the line, but because he was aided in crossing the line, Officially, he did not finish. You know, if we were left on our own, friends, that would be the entry for each one of us, wouldn't it? Did not finish. Couldn't do it. Failed miserably. If we were on our own. There is no such thing as solo quality obedience before God. We can't achieve that. But just when we think we've had enough, when we've been, we think, disqualified and the race is over, it's as if God comes along as our Father and He says to us, let's finish this together. And He takes His arm and He throws it over His shoulder and we limp down the track together and He says, the race isn't over and my son has already won. So welcome to the family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have promised us a relationship that goes far beyond simply being our judge and declaring us righteous, as true as that is. But you, as it were, take us out of um, superior court and take us into family court. And after declaring us not guilty because of what Jesus has done for us, you say, you're not only not guilty, but you're now part of my family. Well, I'm going to be your father. I'm not going to be ashamed of you. You don't have to hide. You don't have to pretend. And I'm going to be with you all the way till the end. Father, thank you for these promises which are true only because Jesus, you've lived for us and you've died for us. May we trust you. May we find your grace. 
in that trust. In Jesus' name.